Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Steve Evans. Welcome, sir. Good evening, sir. How are you? Hey, I'm, I'm doing great. So, how was your week? Uh, you know what? Not too bad. Not too bad. Okay. So, improvement maybe from the last week with the uh, with the work stress and all that. Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm wrestling a little bit with uh, TrueNAS. I can't figure out why one host can see the iSCSI target and the other one can't. So, I've been, I kind of beat my head against that for a couple of days and still haven't gotten to an answer. Did JT not have a similar issue? I feel like he did. Um, I didn't actually, I asked him about something else and didn't think to ask him about that one. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder if he ever got it solved. Anyway, you have to let me know. I've, I've had, I've had reasonably good luck with iSCSI when it's a Linux device mounting the target. Um, Microsoft told me, and I quote, uh, iSCSI is kind of broken and we can charge you $500 and escalate you to an engineer who might or might not be able to fix your problem. Either way, you're paying $500. That was Microsoft's no, answers. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so either. All right. So for not $500, and we will answer the question, our first email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, G'day. You guys were talking about detecting water. Is this any good? And he links to a 12-volt liquid level sensor with a switch relay module for 3 bucks. Um, so this is from AliExpress. I guess, Steve, tell me, what do you think of this liquid level sensor? So I, I took a look at this. Uh, this is just a, a traditional um, do-it-yourself kind of kit where it has multiple contacts and you, you put wires on the different contacts and each contact means something different. Like this is the low water mark, this is kind of the high water mark, and this is the sensor sort of thing. And when the wire touches the water, uh, it sends, you know, the contact is made and then something happens, something mechanical happens. And so... Uh, for a DIY thing, I don't see why not. You could you could have a bunch of things trigger from this. There's there's no smarts in it per se, but you could you could add it to it. Um, the my concern with these sorts of devices is you'd have to figure out a way to protect it sufficiently um, because generally, if you're doing leak sensing or something like that, you have to figure out where to put the wires so that someone doesn't like the problem with the DIY thing like this is figuring out how to put the contact sensors down properly. And if you're talking about dropping it down a well or whatever, or some pump, then uh, you don't have to worry so much about that, but you do have to worry about the wires and everything kind of staying in place. And so I might do something like this. I don't know that I would recommend it to the wider audience unless you're uh, comfortable fooling with, you know, small electronics. So, I am comfortable, you know, monkeying with small electronics. In fact, I it's it's a rare week that I get by without breaking out out a soldering iron, and I enjoy that kind of work. My problem is though, I have two. First is I have the spousal approval factor, which means if something looks like it came out of a Bill Nye the Science Guy's garage, 
and I try to install it in my house, my wife's going to look at it and go, what, what, what is this? What is this circuit board and wiry stuff that is hanging on my beautiful living room? So I've got that to contend with. And then the other side of it is, I, Steve, I just don't have a tolerance for stuff that doesn't work. And so this is the kind of thing that seems like if you sit down at your desk and set it all up, it works fine. And then you think, oh, I'm going to go put that in production. So you go downstairs and you build an enclosure that you think is waterproof or maybe it isn't or whatever. And then six weeks, one month, ten, you know, eight months, year down the road, it stops working because there wasn't a whole the R and D process and the uh, and the Q and A process was like, hey, it looked like it worked, and then we put it into production, and then it stopped working. I'm not necessarily thinking about that because the thing he linked is is mechanical based, right? So mm-hmm. it is just it will uh, okay. It should always <laughs> trigger with with when the contact meets the water. Okay. So it's it's more what kind of backend smarts or the spells approval factor. Um, like I said, this is something that I totally would do. I don't know that I would recommend it for other people because my wife happens to be very forgiving about these things. Okay. Well, that's probably good. I mean, being married to a geek, that's good. And I, I, sh- I shouldn't overemphasize. My wife's pretty tolerant too. She just, she'll say something and then I have to think about it. And to me, it's like a challenge, Steve. It's like, I, I want to get her to like it. <laughs> Our second email comes in from the Linux trucker. He writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve. I just wanted to let you guys know that, like Steve, I'm having the same issue using contact sensors and getting ghost or unavailable statuses and home assistant reboots. My previous solution was just to go and open and shut the door and get a proper status. It worked. So I just did that for a while. Recently, I went through the process of transitioning all of my Tasmoda devices over to ESP Home. For me, having a standard YAML configuration that could be easily edited based on what was attached to the microcontroller was very attractive. In doing so, I discovered a bonus. Contact sensors that are attached to an ESP device running ESP Home no longer have the same status check problem after Home Assistant reboots or if they lose connection to the network. I'm not sure what ESP Home is doing different, but it has solved that problem. And it has solved the problem I was having with network connectivity and devices just dropping off while running Tasmoda. With ESP Home, the default behavior is to reboot when the device loses Wi-Fi connection since moving my devices to ESP Home about three months ago. I haven't had a single unavailable device. This is a huge plus as well. Tasmoda is an awesome firmware, and there's a lot of people who use it on a lot of IoT devices. I still use it on about four lights, uh, smart light bulbs, but everything else just works better for me on ESP Home. Thank you both so so much for the great work. I look forward to hearing and listening to you each week. All the best, Linux Trucker. So, Steve, thoughts on ESP Home versus Tasmoda? So I'll have to look into the specifically the contact sensor. I have never had any of my Tasmoda devices ever drop off the network. Um, it just hasn't happened. And I have a lot. I think I checked. I think I have 85 currently. Um, so... Uh, that's part of the reason why I wanted Noah to come in and help me set up the access points to kind of support all of the various weird things. Uh, if I was having problems, it would be a big problem for me because my first two floors are full of um, smart sockets yeah. that are actually installed in the wall. So if they were dropping off, that would be a severe problem for me. Well, um, don't your closet sensors and all of that, those are all over, over Wi-Fi too, aren't they? Um, the closet sensors are over Zigbee because... Okay. Um, it's really hard to get battery operated Wi-Fi devices because they just burn so much more power. Sure. 
But uh, in terms of the ESP Home stuff, I actually have uh, used and continue to use some ESP Home things. Like I have these Nexion screens I've talked about, and I plug them into um, into ESP Home, and it works brilliantly. Uh, but I still use Tasmoda for pretty much everything else. And I can see this might be a case where one, fi- one size doesn't fit all, but I really like having the web GUI of the Tasmoda devices. Like with ESP Home, it's basically like firmware and becomes kind of a black box. Like you flash mm. it and you kind of hope that it works. <laughs> and if you don't get a signal, you're like, you end up opening up the YAML and like trying to figure out what's going on with this. With Tasmoda, if you don't get the web page, you know something's broken. Whether or not you're getting the right signals out of the web page, that's one thing. But it kind of gives you, coming from Python, I really like the REPL effect of of having the web UI because you can drop to a console right there and just like have it send commands to Home Assistant or whatever. And it gives you that that kind of debug that I kind of got used to. Do you use the web-based installer to flash the device? Um, I have, but generally I don't. Um, because the web-based installer requires a Chrome browser um, or uh, you need to have a, a valid certificate on on your Home Assistant instance in order to use that that feature. So I normally just have um, Tasmodizer and I plug in my little device via the USB and I just upload my binaries that way. Is Tasmodizer, is that available on... Is that, a, is that, is that, I, I, something rattling around the back of my head says when we were trying uh, a different distro, you ran into problems using that software to flash the toes metal stuff, but it worked perfectly on Arch. Am I? Yep. You're, you're correct about that. So, um, it's Python based and as near as I can figure, it just had something to do with the Python version, not talking to the USB device because the, the software just installs properly, but just doesn't detect that you've plugged something into it. So like it fires up a little GUI and then there's a drop down of like, hey, which device do you want to try and flash this to? And um, if it doesn't populate, it hasn't detected the signal or the signature from an ESP device that it thinks it can flash. And so that becomes kind of a stopper for me. I could drop to, there's a, there's a flash tool, there's an ESP... Uh, flasher.py which just runs right on the command line mm-hmm. um, but you have to know all the flags and while that's not particularly comp- uh, complicated I've also found that if the GUI doesn't detect it because all it's doing is firing up those commands for you on the background so if the GUI doesn't detect it, it tends to be that the the ESP flasher also won't detect it okay so Tasmodo ESP home you're still going Tasmodo at least for the time being yeah, like I said, I have some ESP Home stuff, but uh, I love me some Tasmoda, and I have I have had use I have used it for at least four years now, and uh, I don't know, it's going to take something pretty big to move me off. Uh, that's fair. Our third email comes in from Ronald. Ronald writes in and says, "I'm a little behind on the podcast. Last Ask Noah show I listened to. You discussed your move from DigitalOcean to a data center. I work in a large colo data center in Sacramento, California." And I just wanted to mention one thing. I wish more of our clients knew about this. You probably already know this, but if you move or if you have rather a single power supply, most servers have two, especially networking equipment, you have to have two sources of power. You need an 
automatic transfer switch, also known as an ATS. It plugs into both power sources of available power and then supplies an outlet so that either as long as either source is energized, if one of your two PDUs lose power, the UPS faults, the single corded device will still get power from the other PDU. So this is actually particularly useful to me, Steve, because uh, most of the stuff that we have in the data center does have redundant power supplies. Uh, the, the, the notable exception that doesn't is all of the, uh, I'm blanking on iDRAC, all of the iDRAC stuff is sitting on a little switch, and then that has its own little firewall and all the things. That stuff, because it's essentially just a little one-off network that's used for administrating the server, doesn't have any redundant power supplies. And I didn't really think I had much of an option. I just thought, like, it wasn't, just, I was, like, wasn't built for that. Like, I can't put redundancy where there isn't redundancy. I was not aware that you could buy... Uh, I've used ATSs from the standpoint that if you have a building with a backup generator, I've seen automatic transfer switches there. I wasn't aware there was like a little rack unit that you could use that would provide this uh, provide this option. Yeah, I wasn't either. I think this is a, this was a good call out. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I think that, oh, I wanted to mention to you, you know how I've been hunting around for energy vampires, as I call them? Yes, yes. How's that uh, going? This this relates directly. So I just recently got some smart monitors onto my onto the servers down there because I, it was kind of a low priority because the servers tell you the readout like, hey, I'm using 100 watts or whatever, kind mm-hmm. of keeping track of that. Um, but I was like, well, it'd be nice to pull this into Home Assistant, blah, blah, blah. It turns out that when I shut them down overnight uh, between the four the four servers that I have there, the I, the ILOs are using some obscene amount. They're between the four of them, they're using like 150 watts. Uh, so it turned out to be like a kilowatt and something overnight just for them to be sitting doing nothing. Have You've had some interesting experience with, with ILO, I feel like. From, yeah. the, from the weird like reboot issue? Yeah. Um, I, I've Generally, it works fairly well. I find that at least for... For what I use, the reason why I kind of went with the HP stuff is because, well, one, most of the people that I know at at Red Hat have gone one of two ways. They're either gone with the ProLiant series or they're gone with a ton of Nuxt. And so, really, yeah, man, that is uh, that's eye opening. Yep, um, for me, that wasn't really the way that I wanted to go because the Nuxt end up being significantly more expensive. Sure, right? Because you're paying for you, space. You're paying for space, exactly. Um, so the HP ProLiant servers tend to be cheaper than the Dells for what you get for them. And so you're just kind of stuck with the ILOs. So, yeah, that that's the main reason I ended up going that route. Okay. But you found you found an energy, energy vampire. So what are you doing about this? You Home Assistant reports, hey, this thing is eating up a bunch of power. What are you, I mean, are you shutting it off then completely when you're not, when it's not in use, like a little smart plug or something? Yeah. So these, uh, I referenced them before. So the brand that I actually am using in my for my sockets are called GoSun, um, and you can flash them. So they're like sixteen bucks on Amazon. And you can flash them with um, ESP Home or Tasmoto, whichever one you like. And what I like about them is they're individually controllable. Like a lot of the sockets that you can get, one of them is smart and one of them is always on. But with these guys, you can control one or the other, and they've got power monitoring on them. So I went and bought four of those and stuck them across the two circuits where these servers are, and I just was watching them, and that's when I discovered it. So I shut the servers down when I'm not using them because, um, honestly, I already have 
I already have like a VM server that that serves things like Confluence and all of the other stuff that we use at home. So my lab is purely for work hours. So I shut it down because I don't mm. need to be burning the power outside of that mm-hmm. eight hours or whatever. Um, but I've, I've just been going on this, like, where are we losing all of this energy from? Like all of my things are saying we're not burning that much energy. So, uh, yeah, when at the end of the day, essentially, I just shut the drack down as well. Um, and eventually I'm going to automate it like I've done with some of my other things where I know I'm not going to be using it between 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. So I just have that automatically shut off. That's fascinating. That's that's interesting. And it, like, did you notice when you so you bring this server home, you plug it in? Did you notice on your energy bill like, hey, what in the Jiminy Crickets is eating all our power up? Or was it more along the lines of you started searching for vampires and then you went, wow, we're spending X on that? Well, it it wasn't really what am I spending the money on with the servers specifically because I'd been hunting these energy vampires for several weeks now. It was more like I'm doing these things and yet I haven't actually seen a marked difference. Why mm. is that? And so that's that's what led me further down that route. Like shutting down my my receiver shuts off 30 watts, mm-hmm. uh, but then bringing home four servers that are eating <laughs> quadruple that, you know, like... Didn't see an impact. Hey, Steve, I'm talking, looking at our power bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We traded the the, the standby subwoofer for the ILO. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, our fourth email comes, by the way, we'll have links for you for all of this stuff in the show notes. So if you're looking for a Taz motorizer or if you're looking for the APC automatic transfer switch, um, I don't know if this is the specific one Ronald was referring to, but we'll have links for you in the show, show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our fourth email comes in from Tyler. Tyler writes in and says, greetings. I was hoping to gain some insights on running containers. I've been considering setting up one of these extra older servers to run my containers. I currently have I've been running on Docker on an Ubuntu VM that I set up on my Proxmox server. I have an older Dell PowerEdge R210 Blade server or a Dell T610 tower that I was considering using for just the containers. My question, what would you guys recommend as an OS to run a bare metal that could be used for just containers? I'm currently using Docker, but would not mind learning Podman or Kubernetes. So far, my containers are just Pie hole and Jellyfin, but I would like to move over my Unify network appliance if possible, my home assistant, and future containers. I may find the need for. I also run Plex, but it's currently on BSD on my TrueNAS, and I'm hoping Jellyfin will work to replace it. If you have time to answer a second question, the second question is: If I run Home Assistant Core on Docker, would that make a di- would that be the difference? I see running the full OS as a VM, which is what I'm currently doing. I'm brand new to Home Assistant and have very little setup so far, so I'm open to whatever makes the most sense. Thanks, guys, for all the great show and the information. Regards from the rainy Pacific Northwest, Tyler. So, Steve, I want to break this down a little bit into a couple of questions. So, I guess question one: um, You know something about containers? You've you've at least heard of them. Uh, what would you recommend Tyler use for hardware for running uh, Docker on? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on what he's going to run because containers are as lightweight or as heavy as you want them to be because they're just essentially a way to run an application as close to bare metal as possible. Okay. So uh, second question is Docker or Podman? Mm, I would say that if you're starting Greenfield, Podman is the direction that the industry is kind of going. Docker is being left behind and this is largely because they're going 
they're going a direction that their company feels is the right direction to go. And I, I'm not here to dispute that, but we've got Podman that's following the kind of the open the open standard, and that means that it's getting a bunch of momentum from people contributing to it as it's as it's growing. Because uh, at least for the foreseeable future, Podman doesn't require any kind of daemon um, because it just basically builds a container from from scratch like you would if you were doing this by hand, whereas Docker actually runs a daemon, and that has different implications for you down the line, as well as the ability to run containers that are not being run as root. That is more difficult to engineer inside of a Docker environment, whereas Podman was was exactly meant to be able to handle these situations. Have you have you uh, containerized a unified network appliance at all? And if so, good experience, bad experience? Yeah, I absolutely have. Um, well, I have the controller containerized. Does that yeah, count? Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I think. That's what he's asking. Yep. Um, largely, I have not had any issues with that. the The most difficult thing that I had wasn't really related to the the internals of this. I only moved it out of a container very recently because of the way that I have my network set up that I I want to be able to control hosts on something other than the default VLAN. Mm. And that was causing me problems where I needed to have multiple networks. And you can do this with containers. I just didn't want to get into it. I had a box sitting around with, with two NICs and I was just like, fine, I'll install the controller on this and call it a day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then his second question, I think we should charge him double for this, but if he's running home assistant core on Docker, what would be the difference between the full OS? And actually, as I'm reading that, as I just said that out loud, I'm thinking even the OS, isn't it still containerizing Docker underneath? Yeah. So the, the difference between the, the HASIO and home assistant core is that core, regardless of how you install it doesn't have supervisor supervisor is a an additional project that helps uh, control various containers and kind of bind them together for you so for example if you want to run node red or you want to run um, esp home right off of off of your home assistant supervisor will go out and get the container for that and and integrate it with you right into the ui so that you get a like a nice ui menu and you can configure it and you have all your logs in one place and stuff like that that's what supervisor brings supervisor is not installed by default on core uh, whether you grab the container or whether you install core directly through the python and so that's one of the big reasons why i ended up going with uh, the a vm and doing just the full HASIO installation. Is to get supervisor. Yeah, because otherwise you have to do it yourself, which which is fine. It's just more stuff for you to manage. Like right. there are lots of people out there like like our friends over at JB that like to swear by Docker Compose. I never really uh I never really got into that. I'd much rather have something else take care of it than for me to remember to keep adding things into my my Docker Compose file. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's just, I think that's probably an Alex thing. That'd be my guess. Well, Alex is out there doing that. And I know that, I know that Wes has been a big fan of that too. <laughs> um, okay. So last thing is he's talking, he says he doesn't have a lot set up, so he's open to whatever makes sense. He doesn't have to blow anything away, right? Home assistant is, it's 
pretty straightforward to export your config out, and it takes everything with it. So when you move your Hasio instance over to somewhere else and say, okay, now I want it to live over here in a container, or I want the full OS, or I want a VM, or whatever it is you're doing, you want to buy the little Raspberry Pi thing that they make, you can just import your config, and every, everything you have done up until that point will just follow along with you. Yep. Um, one of the nice things is that it actually, when you do your backup, it gives you a little checkbox of which things you want to, what you want to include in the backup. So you can exclude things and that allows you to, to do very precise backups. And, and the same thing with the restore. When you do a restore, you can actually just go in there and check like, I only want to restore, I don't know, my ESP home stuff as opposed to all of, because I've completely migrated away from, from Home Assistant to something else. So I'm just going to do this one particular thing. Our fifth email comes in from Keith. Keith says, hi, Noah, had a couple of things. First of all, Self's website has an expired certificate certificate. Oh, no. Second of all, I know that you guys have addressed networking basics, the story of UltraSpeed and a bunch of other stuff. But could you maybe make an episode to include me asking a question for electricians and or low volt installers moving into open source technology installations? You know, that is a that's an interesting concept, Steve. Uh, I think it is. I'd like to get more information because I, I wasn't really fully able to parse what the ask was from this and really wrap my brain around it. So I'd I'd like to get another email with kind of a more fleshed out idea of of what the writer would like to see. Sure. If I was to hazard to guess, I would say, you know, you if if you if you put yourself into the shoes of an electrician, they're trained on, you know, proper spacing and you were going to strap the cable every so many feet. And this is how we make it look pretty. And we're going to calculate the, ba- the the radius for the bends for when we're putting conduit in. They they know all of that stuff and they have it down to a fine science. And so as a low voltage guy, I always look to the electricians anytime I need a hand or I need a help or I get up against a problem I can't solve because those guys can get wire from point A to point B. And really, as a low voltage guy, my job is to plug stuff in uh, to, to the wire that's that, you know, that, that that's there. So um, I care more about the endpoints than I do uh, about the actual wiring. But there's a lot of stuff that uh, there's a lot of a there's just a lot of general tricks that electricians have learned. But there's a lot of other stuff that I think electricians naturally get that we don't really think about, for instance. Um, when you're running this wire, you'll want to keep it X amount of feet away from the AC power lines. When you're making a curve, you don't want to bend it at a tight 90 degree. When you're, uh, you know, and they know to, to look at that kind of stuff. They have charts for how many wires you can fit through a given diameter of a piece of conduit. And so all of those things are are things that, um, that could be interesting. Um, but the part that they're missing is they don't understand what you know would i need to run cat 5 here or would i need to run cat 6 how many drops of cat 6 should i pull when i'm doing this um what what things can i attach what kind of endpoints can i attach to the end and so i've tried to be a good community member in that when i come across uh when i come across installers or electricians or there's a locksmith in town that we work with pretty closely, and um, if he has an access control question, he'll give me a call. And if I have a, a question on how to rip a lock out or how to modify something to work with an access control system, I'll give him a call. So I think my guess is, and 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 please write back in, Keith, and 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 clarify. My guess is he's asking for, hey, can we kind of get that communal idea of? Here's the people that pull wire. Here's the people that know what to put at the end of the wire. Let's put all the information in the same room so everybody can do it. 
Yeah, I, I think it'd be an interesting idea, and it probably falls into a good subsection of the people uh, who listen to the show. Yeah, 100%. Our sixth email comes in. I'm probably going to butcher this. Is it Siran? says, hi, Noah. I was just listening to the show in which you suggested to use an access camera as a baby monitor. Whilst I believe this is an excellent idea and will deliver a secure solution, I was missing one word of caution to that. Some surveillance cameras feature high-powered infrared lights. Short-term and long-distance exposure to these are just fine. However, prolonged short-range exposure... So if, for example, if you were to take a camera and mount it right above a baby's bed, might lead to damage to the eyes. Exposing an infant to this gives me hesitance. The word of caution does not only apply to access products, but surveillance camera in general. Most camera vendors, camera vendors should, access absolutely does, allow you to disable the IR lights. Kind regards. So this is the kind of thing I always really appreciate, right? Because I don't think about this stuff. Um, and it frequently flies over my head. And so to have somebody be able to point this out and say, hey, you might want to think about this. this absolutely right. Um, would never want to put something up that, you know, that could potentially be harmful to a kid uh, in and in, in IR. I've not looked into it myself, but it stands to reason that uh, that human bodies and, and human eyes weren't designed for, for infrared light. Uh, so that's, that's, that's great to point out. I, I, the only thing I might add to that is I think in, if I remember right in our, when our kids were growing up, we didn't, I don't think, yeah, we didn't use anything IR. We just had little nightlights in the room. Um, and that was really more because when the baby did wake up every five hours crying and you went in to go do something to the baby, you didn't want to trip and fall and you want to be able to see where the diaper wipes are and all the things. Uh, so little nightlight really helps there. And, um, if you get a good camera that has a good sensor, Access certainly does. Um, that'll allow you to see in low light. Um, that might be a good way to go. Um, but thanks for writing in. We appreciate it. Our pick of the week this week is mps.js slash md to PDF. So this is a NPM uh, package that allows you to convert markdown files to PDF. <clears throat> I, was, I was talking to Steve about this before the show tonight. Um, we... Uh, at Alta Speed, I'm trying to separate myself from, uh, or or really trying to make a cohesive uh, uh, form of. I work in both the tech side and the sales side, and so I'm dealing with all of these business owners and presidents and whoever else, and they all live in Microsoft OneDrive and Word docs and PDFs. And on the tech side, everybody I work with wants to write everything inside of a text file or a markdown file because they have to push it up to Git or pull it down from Git or whatever. Thinking around using C file. And I'm kind of caught in the middle. And so one of the guys that works for me, uh, I wrote out a document that I was going to go to deliver to a client. And I asked him, hey, I need some technical changes. I need some input on this. And rather than just giving me the changes and me putting them into the office editor, or rather than just editing the office document himself, he went and recreated the entire thing exactly the way I had it written inside of a office document, but did it in Markdown to include the font color and the formatting and the different fonts and the, the images exactly how I had it. And I looked at it and he had me the PDF uh, to go give the client. And I looked at it and I said, how did you make this? And he said, well, I, you know, did it in Markdown. I said, why? Well, because it's just a lot faster and I can go do this. And I started thinking about it. I thought, you know, it actually does make some sense to me. All of the technical people that have spent all their time behind a keyboard, it doesn't make any sense to go fighting with an 
with a with a, with an office word processor that essentially was designed back in the late 80s early 90s and and follows a, a flawed design scheme you drag a picture in there all of a sudden text it all over the place you can't figure out what the formatting is doing why would we do that i mean we want essentially a couple of basic things we want big text small text bold text uh text and then bullets and then some pictures in the middle and markdown does all that flawlessly and much faster the problem is you have to be able to put it into some sort of format that your client or or normie uh, can see. And that's where this markdown to PDF extension comes in. You literally uh, cat a particular markdown file and pipe it to this M, uh, markdown to PDF, and it will output a PDF of whatever the markdown is. Now, there's a number of different ways to do this. I, I think HackMD has it natively built in. Uh, VS Codium has an extension for it. Um, but this is a nice way that we could have all the laptops configured just that when you drop it into a specific folder, it spits out a PDF, and then we can send that off to the client. Um, as I was telling Steve about this, Steve writes all of his articles uh, in Markdown, but you've got a different solution. Uh, Steve, talk about that. So I use something called Wiki.js. I stumbled across this project three or four years ago, maybe a little bit longer, when I was kind of doing a bake-off of, of wikis for Red Hat uh, for a specific project. And what I really like about Wiki.js is that it gives you a nice wiki, WYSIWYG. And I know you've got the, uh, you know, VS Code and its plugins and every that's all the rage for everybody. But one of the things that I really like about having this in a wiki format is it's pretty easily searchable and you can do things like tagging it and all sorts of things, which is more difficult to do if you've got a bunch of markdowns in a directory, even if you're storing it in Git. So yes, you can do version control in, in Git and that's wonderful. And Wiki.js can even use Git as a backend if if you set it up to do that. Uh, but I like having the WYSIWYG editor. So WYSIWYG, for the people that don't know, is what you see is what you get. And it gives you a nice kind of um, series of commands. Like I don't need to remember, for example, what the strike through notation is or what is an info block quote or what's what is the what's the error block quote or anything like that. Uh, because it's just got those buttons built in right on the right in the bar for me, and just like any other editor, it, you can put it in split screen so you can see what the rendered version is as you're writing your markdown and stuff like that. But I'm I'm a big fan of wikis, and I find that it allows people, other people, to find your stuff uh, more quickly than just having a Git repo with a bunch of markdown because someone has to pull it down and then they have to do some grepping or whatever. Whereas with this, it's just like, hey, spouse or significant other or whoever, here's a link, you know, go search for this, you know, search for the word chicken and you'll find the recipe that you found or, or whatever with all of the with all the details and links involved in that. And I just find it significantly nicer because especially if you're linking out to external uh, artifacts, so like you can import pictures from off the web, or if you're just linking out to other documents from off the web, that becomes a little more challenging to follow that all through if you're not already using your web browser. The other, the other thing I like, and this is just really more of a commentary on, on Markdown, I guess, in general, is when you're done with the WYSIWYG editor, then you still have a Markdown file that you're sending to opensource.com or whatever, because they, they're going to publish to whatever their publishing platform is, 
and it accepts Markdown. And yet, if I want to deliver the same content to a client, I can export it in PDF. And if I want to host it on my own web page, I can export it as HTML. Um, so, or and if I send it an element message, it's just going to render in there. Like, there's a bunch of different platforms and tools that can take Markdown and turn it into essentially whatever you want. Yeah, um, I find that it's just I really like Markdown. I I think it's far better than a doc. I I I really dislike writing a doc, even though it is it is required. Um, there's a bunch of let's say Markdown style languages, but because places like GitHub make you familiar with it to begin with, it just becomes kind of second nature to um, to kind of use the the predominant standard out there. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the week in review. With JT. Rocket Chat and Nextcloud team up to offer a powerful open source alternative to Office 365, Slack, and others. An AMD GPU Linux driver update allows multiple users across several engines to execute simultaneously. And new patches have been posted for booting Linux on the Nintendo Wii U. Details have emerged about CVE 2022-0492 a now-patched high-severity vulnerability in the Linux kernel that could potentially be abused to escape a container in order to execute arbitrary commands on the container host. Max Kellerman has announced DirtyPipe, a vulnerability that affects the Linux kernel 5.8 and later. And researchers warn of typo-squatting packages making their way into open-source repositories. The Open Source Security Foundation has gained support from Huawei, Spotify, and 23 other new members. The Harvard Laboratory for Innovation Science and the Linux Foundation's Open Source Security Foundation have put together a list of the top 1,000 open source libraries. This list contains both NPM and non-NPM libraries. Steam survey results for February 2022 put Linux just above 1% use. Researchers at Carnegie Mellon University have developed Polycoder, an open source AI code generator that they claim is better than OpenAI's Codec, which backs GitHub's Copilot. Linux on an SBC project has released version 2202 of Armbian. Nitrix 2.0.1 switches to Mesa 22 by default for Linux gaining and adds KDE Plasma 5.24 LTS. And the Budgie desktop has released version 10.6 of their desktop. A new Linux vulnerability is out, and this one squarely affects C groups. So before we go any further, Steve, you've written an entire article series on C groups and namespaces, which we'll have linked in the show notes of podcast.asnoahshow.com. What do we need to understand about containers in order to be able to discuss and, and understand this vulnerability? So you need to understand a couple of things. Um, if you read the, the description of this vulnerability, it'll talk about things called capabilities. And capabilities are a fine-grained set of permissions or ways to control permissions on a Linux system. And uh, I think there's 38 of them or something like that. It's it's pretty fine-grained. So you need to understand that. You also need to understand that when you're dealing with containers, the whole purpose of containers is a level of segregation so that what's on the host can't be seen by what's in the container. And I'd say vice versa, that's not exactly technically accurate, but but there is some layer of, of prevention that allows that bleed over to happen very easily. 
So that's what the goal of containers are. And the heart of this exploit relies on the idea that inside of C groups, uh, there is a file system structure that gets created. And C groups are used to control the access to or the control of specific hardware. So how much CPU or RAM can a process have or, you know, can it can it create UDEV things and those sorts of situations. What's happening in this vulnerability is that there's a file in the root namespace for C groups that the kernel will read whatever the contents are. If you have the appropriate capabilities inside of a container, what you can do is you can actually write into whatever whatever you want into this file and then cause the kernel to reread it. And that's, it will read these uh, with root permissions because the file is owned by root. So what kind of things would you want to write into this container and then have the kernel read and how is that beneficial to an attacker? So essentially you can give yourself any kind of permission on the system at all with this. If you know what you're doing, all you have to do is boost your capabilities by putting the pro appropriate commands in this file and then having the kernel read it because the kernel is going to read this file and because it's owned by root, it's going to essentially follow this with root privileges all the way through. Can you tell me a little bit about what What's who who would be affected by this? Is this everybody who's running uh, containers or C groups? If I have a out of the box rel installation, let's take that as as a starting point. Um, th would they be vulnerable to this attack? So, the, this attack is mitigated in rel by several uh, different factors. So, number one, SE Linux, and this goes for AppArmor as well. SE Linux and AppArmor do not allow writing to this file. Um, from another process. So that will that will mitigate this vulnerability completely to begin with. So don't do what all of the blogs say, which is to turn off these two things that protect you. The other thing that should be known about this is that this really is impactful only if you're already running containers as root or the daemon the Docker daemon, for example, or your container engine is running as root. Because what it, what has to happen is you have to be able to inherit the root C group in order for this file to exist. Now, without getting too far down in the weeds, essentially what happens is there's a C group namespace. And every time that you create a container, you should, in theory, create a new C group namespace for the container so it doesn't see anything on the host. Now, there are some container technologies out there that do not do this. And what happens is if you do not create a specific type of namespace, the Linux kernel will just be like, OK, well, I'm just going to use whatever's default on the system. And in this case, it would be the root namespace for C groups, which has this file that you don't want them to happen. Now, is that a is that a is that a mistake? Is that a, is that a, is was that an oversight or is that designed with intention? No, that's designed with intention because namespaces have existed before containers were really a thing. And the idea here is that these are kind of building blocks that you that you can mix and match to achieve a different outcome on a system. So I, I was kind of chatting with Noah before the show about this. And a really easy way to think about this is 
I actually have a network namespace that I create when I'm going on to check the sports scores because I have a bunch of like don't track me type software running on the network that prevents this website from loading properly. So I create a new network namespace on my machine and do a bunch of stuff, but I still want to have access to everything else that the host has. I want my browsers. I want, you know, my logins and all of the rest of that sort of stuff to work. I just want to be using a different namespace for the networking so that I can essentially tunnel out without affecting my outgoing processes. Like some people would say, well, you could just turn on a VPN. I'm like, yes, I could do that, but that would disrupt any of the processes that my host is already running. For example, if I'm, you know, I have a, a, a constant mount, for example, to my NAS for several mount points. And if I turn on my uh, a VPN, there's a po- possibility that DNS is, is altered or these uh, DNS entries will not be resolved properly because now I'm using the resolver of where my VPN output is all just so I can watch the sports score. So uh, I don't want to affect the running processes on the host that are already interacting as they should. I want to create a new process with a new, uh, a new way to interact with the network. And that's how namespaces will work. You know, I just want, I just want a very specific task to do one thing as opposed to spinning up in a container to do everything. If I can dig, uh, take you on a little bit of a, a, a sidebar for a moment, um, how complicated or what are the steps involved in spinning up a new new namespace to browse a sports website? It seems like that could be kind of a useful tool. Yeah, it's not particularly difficult. Um, there really are only four commands that are involved in this. So the command to create the namespace is an unshare command, and then when you're creating a new namespace, a particular a network namespace, um, there's this idea of either the kernel space or user space in terms of what utilities you have access to. When you are creating or dealing with networks and network configuration, this requires elevated privileges and often reside, resides in the kernel space. So that means that an unprivileged user often can't configure their own networking without putting their password in Mm. because they need to elevate their privileges. There is a, um, because you don't want your container to have any level of that elevated privilege, there is a network um, utility that lives in user namespace and it's called Slurp for NetNS. And it's designed specifically for this, to have a network namespace that doesn't have any elevated privileges but can still create um, some networking to get out. So step one is you create your namespace. Step two, you run this slurp for NetNS command. Uh, step three is optional, but overriding your your etsyresolve.conf because if you're tunneling out somewhere, for example, or you want to use different name servers, uh, you would do that. And then step four is to launch your web browser. So we talked a little bit about who wouldn't be affected if you if you. Do. By the way, let, let me dig into that a little bit. So. If you're one of those people, you come across a blog and it says shut SC Linux off, just go ahead and disable that and then continue on with your install. Uh, what is the appropriate response if you're having trouble with SC Linux? Honestly, SC Linux has gotten a lot easier to deal with, uh, but there's also a bigger mindshare out there now too. Instead of shutting things off that you don't understand, like if you're labbing, that's one thing. But if you're actually setting up a machine that's going to be permanent, 
you probably should take the time to learn why the security that your operating system vendor has put in place is there and how you should interact with it. So all SE Linux does is it has a default set of rules and set, you know, kind of, it uses a bunch of labels and says, hey, this process with this label is trying to write to something else that it doesn't have permission to, and I'm going to stop that. Uh, and you can easily discover this by looking at the the audit log. Now I say easily, I mean that kind of tongue in cheek because the audit log can be notoriously terrible to read through because uh, it looks a little bit cryptic, but there are tools that can help you with this. But to get back to your, your question, there's two ways that you can deal with this. If it's a relatively complicated thing, you can put SE Linux in permissive mode, which says I'm still going to log all of the violations so that you can come back and actually fix it later, but I'm going to allow the application to run. And this will allow you to get your application up and running and then slowly start making adjustments so that you can turn SE Linux back into enforcing mode. Uh, ultimately, it's really not that difficult, even if you wanted to do something crazy. Like there is a, um, in the logs, it often gives you an output that's like, hey, if you just want to allow all of these, these things that are currently happening, here's the command that does that for you. And I'd say you do that more often than just shutting it off because yes, having a giant hole in SE Linux is better than having it off completely because you're unlikely to have turned off this um, this functionality that would prevent this uh, privilege escalation on your system. Yeah, and to me, it never made any sense to me. So in permissive mode, as you so eloquently put, it, it functionally is the same as having SC Linux disabled. The only difference is in order to actually disable SC Linux, it requires a reboot because it has to be set in the kernel when it comes up. So if you're running in permissive mode, you're not nothing that wouldn't work with SC Linux disabled would not work with SC Linux enabled and in permissive mode. The only thing you're getting is logging so so that you can, as again, as you so eloquently put, understand why that, that functionality is in place. Yeah, uh, ultimately your goal should be to have a system that is running within the security pa parameters that your operating system vendor kind of sets out for you. you. You, It's Linux, you're free to do whatever you like, but there's a reason why these defaults exist and, and learning to work with them is probably better than saying, you know what, I know better than the people who literally wrote the software. Yeah, the NSA spent a lot of money putting that into your operating system. You should make sure to turn it on. Yeah, well, I might not pitch the NSA thing, but that, that goes back into history because <laughs> they're, they're not so much involved with that anymore. Like, like the, uh, the Linux as a whole has taken... SE Linux and adopted it. So it's not an NSA project. It just happened to be that that was, that was the main driver for it historically. Yeah. That just always makes me, I always get a kick out of it every time I think about it. But okay. So who is affected? Obviously somebody who's running SE Linux is not affected. If you pull a, a, a rel installation out of the box and install it and don't go monkeying with the defaults, you're not going to, you're not going to be affected. Who, who, who is at risk for this vulnerability? If you are running privileged containers, uh, you could be at risk. If you have turned off uh, App Armor or SE Linux, you're definitely at risk. If you have a misconfigured container, so I alluded to the idea of namespaces and being able to not see things on the host. If the container has not mounted its own C group, then you, you are at risk because 
if you if the container has its own C group, it will not see this file that the host has. So you can write to that file all you want, but it's inside the container and the kernel isn't going to read that because that file exists only inside of the container as opposed to the one in the host. So there there are a lot of uh, places that could be vulnerable. If you're using any kind of um, enterprise container system, I, I'm not really sure about Rancher, but I'd have, I'd wager that they also have some security in place to make sure that this doesn't happen. So if Podman, you're probably not at risk because Podman often doesn't run privileged containers. It tries to run them as a user first. If you're running Docker as root without any of these protections in place, uh, I definitely would see if I could break out myself and then you would know if you're vulnerable. Somebody's listening to this and they're listening and they're going namespaces, C groups, all the things. I This sounds interesting. I want to learn more. Can you think of where somebody might go to learn more about C groups and namespaces and, and such? Well, there's lots of places on the internet. There's tons of good talks on YouTube. Um, oh, come on, Steve. You know what I'm talking about. Well, I guess if you're going to twist my arm, I, I've <laughs> done quite a few articles for... Uh, redhat.com on building a container by hand and kind of really walking you through each namespace. And I felt that this was kind of lacking. Uh, when I was starting to learn this stuff, I went and was like, okay, so I read about what this is, but how, like, how does this actually apply to me? So my style of, of learning is more, uh, tutorial style. I, I learn a lot more from tutorials than I do from reading regular documentation. So I've Hands tried to learning. do, yeah, I've, I've tried to do basically take the theory and mix it with tutorials so that you can actually walk through and get a, an understanding of what, what the namespaces are and how they work. It's the same thing with C groups. If you want to mess around with, um, containing, uh, an application or a process to specific number of CPU cores or whatever, there's there's a good walkthrough out there for that. So you've got a, a guide on namespaces. We'll have that linked to the show notes. And then you have a four-part series on C groups. It goes through in great detail, um, basically everything you ever wanted to know and probably then some on C groups. I actually have, uh, I think, about six namespace articles. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so they they roll out over time because between the the technical complexity of writing them and then how getting them uh through the editors it takes a while like the the namespaces ones they roll out very slowly i did one in january i've submitted another one that should be out uh shortly on the network namespace so i've i've tackled all of them except for the ipc and the c groups namespaces so there's some good uh, good stuff out there if, if you're interested in some tutorials. Very good. And we'll have all of those linked for you in the show notes. You can find more at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Hey, the music in my ears, it means we're out of time. But thanks for joining us. We love having you. You can participate. We invite you to send your feedback to live at asknoahshow.com. If there's a particular segment you're looking for, if you have questions, if you have comments on what Steve and I talk about, then we want to hear hear about it. We record the show every Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Central. You can learn more at asknoahshow.com. Get the full back catalog at podcast.asknoahshow.com. That includes the show notes and all the articles we use to build the show. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Asknoahshow.com.